A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Between 8 and 9 a.m. on Sunday, April 19th, there was smoke rising from the banks of the Wallace River in Wentworth, Nova Scotia. It was coming from Hunter Road at the home of Sean McLeod and Alana Jenkins. For the fifth time in less than 12 hours, Gabriel Wartman had set a fire as his murderous rampage continued outside Portapique. And just like the night before, people rushed toward the flames, hoping to help their neighbors. They had no idea what awaited them. At 8.02 a.m., the Nova Scotia RCMP gave their first update to the public on Twitter since a note about a firearms complaint at 11.32 the night before. Here's what they said, quote, RCMP NS remains on scene in Portapique. This is an active shooter situation. Residents in the area, stay inside your homes and lock your doors. Call 911 if there is anyone on your property. You may not see the police, but we are there with you, Portapique, end quote. But there was no attempt to alert the public using an emergency warning system. It was shaping up to be the kind of early spring morning where you just wanted to get out and feel the sun on your face. And in the middle of a pandemic when you couldn't do much, a walk was a welcome distraction. That's what Tom Bagley was doing just before 9 a.m. He lived down the road from Sean and Alana, The retired Navy veteran was just a couple of days shy of his 71st birthday. He was a father of three and a grandfather. Like a lot of Nova Scotians you'll meet in this story, he found happiness being outside, in the forests, lakes, and rivers that draw people away from the city. Tom was a sort of -of jack-of-all-trades who had helped his daughter Charlene build her house. Him and my mom have been married now almost, or together almost 50 years. Uh, He loved being outdoors. He um, loved hunting, fishing, snowmobiling, biking, anything to do with it being outdoors. He loved his retirement life out in, at his cottage in Hunter Road and all of the friends that he had made. Um, the only thing that probably made him happier than seeing him out there would be when he would see my children. Tom's generosity extended beyond family and friends. He donated blood more than a hundred times. He was the kind of man who was always looking to help, and he spent a lifetime volunteering. That volunteer work included firefighting. So it's no surprise to those who love him that when he saw smoke that morning, he ran toward it. Tom was killed trying to help Sean and Alana. At 8.54 a.m., the RCMP tweeted again. This time, it was a photo of the gunman. They named him publicly for the first time, and they said there were several victims. There was no mention of the real-looking police car he was driving. Within half an hour of that tweet, by 9.23 a.m., the gunman was on the move again, driving that mock police car, and he was a danger to absolutely everyone in his path. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie, and this is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, Episode 9, Too Little, Too Late. Lillian Campbell went out walking almost every day, usually in her reflective vest for safety. She lived near Wentworth, just a short drive south of Hunter Road. She and her husband, Mike Hislop, lived in the Yukon for more than three decades, where she worked in public health. When Mike inherited some property in Nova Scotia, they moved across the country to make a home in the Wentworth Valley. They spent nearly six years of their retirement in this quiet area where they created a beautiful garden. They loved being close to the beaches. During their time in the North, Lillian was active in the dog mushing community. She and Mike raised sled dogs for years. Her kind, gentle nature made her a natural fit with the animals. At 65, Lillian had explored this country, and she had many adventures left. On the morning of April 19th, she went for her usual walk. Sometimes, Heather and David Matthews would see Lillian around the community. They lived in the same rural area, and that Sunday morning, they were out for their regular walk. 
we got halfway through the path, which is about a 15 minute walk, maybe, you know, probably, got, you know, we got about halfway through there and we heard a shot or a loud pop, you know, it was hard, you know, it was hard to distinguish, you know, like I wasn't sure if it was a car backfiring or, or whatever. At around 9.35 a.m., Lillian Campbell was walking on the side of Highway 4 when a police cruiser drove into the area heading south away from Hunter Road. But it wasn't a police officer driving that car. Lillian was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the gunman was now murdering at random. Heather and David continued their walk nearby. We both heard the sound together and we talked about it. We kind of wondered what it might be, that it was in the direction of in front of us, but we weren't sure how far in front of us. And we continued on our walk and about 45, 50 minutes later, we returned home to phone calls from neighbors telling us to stay in, lock our doors and stay away from the windows. That there was someone on the loose with a gun. Uh, And I said to the girl that called me, I said, well, maybe that was the sound that we heard earlier. As the day went on, they learned more about what had happened through friends, through social media and the news. They heard that their friend had been killed, and the realization set in that they were so close to being in the gunman's path themselves. Just, it it tells me how fragile everything is. It can be here one moment and gone the next. We just don't know. Um, We would never suspect in this small community that anything like that would ever happen here. And many of us are out walking in the morning or biking or jogging or whatever we might like to do. Uh, There were so many other possibilities of what could have happened that morning. My my big concern, I think, was the, the fact that we were receiving calls after our walk. I was wondering why we could not have received an alert of some kind. Uh, We get COVID-19 alerts. We get uh, Amber alerts. Why could we not have received, perhaps after the process of this beginning at 1130 the night before, uh, some kind of an alert to warn us that there was someone loose and that perhaps if that occurred on our devices, televisions, radios, telephones, perhaps Lillian would still be living. And that question has come up over and over again. Why didn't we get an alert? Canada has an emergency alert system called Alert Ready. It allows governments and police to send widespread warnings about everything from a missing or abducted child to a natural disaster or a terrorist attack. These alerts will interrupt broadcasts on TV and radio and send a loud notification to cell phones. The system was developed by all levels of government in collaboration with police, including the RCMP. It's designed to reach the largest number of people in as little time as possible in an emergency, and it can be targeted to specific geographic areas. On the Alert Ready website, the first thing you'll see is an image of a bunch of cell phones arranged to look like a life preserver with the tagline, your phone has the power to save a life. The site lists the type of emergencies the system is meant to be used for, including civil emergencies, which include active shooter situations. The week before the shooting spree, Nova Scotia's Emergency Management Office sent out an alert to the entire province, reminding us that COVID-19 restrictions were in place and telling us to stay home over the Easter weekend. But over the 13 hours that Gabriel Wartman was killing people and lighting homes and vehicles on fire on April 18th and 19th, no alert was ever sent. Why? My colleague Brian Hill is an investigative journalist with Global News, and he's done a lot of reporting for us exploring this very question. So, Brian, do we know why Nova Scotians didn't get an alert? Logically speaking, it's hard to understand why they didn't get an alert. By this point in our timeline, there was a murderous gunman on the loose for at least 10 hours, and police hadn't sent out an alert using the emergency alert system. And I think there's a lot of people in Nova Scotia and elsewhere who wonder why that never happened. In a press conference on April 20th, the day after the killing spree ended, the RCMP tried to explain why they didn't send out an alert. Let's listen to what they said. 
This is an exchange between RCMP Chief Superintendent Chris Leather and RCMP Public Information Officer Corporal Lisa Croteau in response to a question from a reporter who asked why the emergency alert system wasn't used. As it relates to the the use of the uh, alert system versus uh, Twitter, perhaps my friend from communications can speak to that. I believe there was an Amber Alert that went out at some point. No, we no. just used the Twitter and Facebook just because it was unfolding. And we were in contact with the province about it, but it just never got in suspect. So the police did post on Facebook that Sunday morning to tell people to watch their Twitter feed for updates. Brian, did the RCMP explain why they were using Twitter? Yes. During that same press conference, Chief Superintendent Leather said they used Twitter because it was their normal method of communicating with the public. And he actually said it was a superior way to communicate instantaneously with people. We've spoken with a number of public safety and policing experts who've said they couldn't think of a better use for the emergency alert system than what was happening that weekend in Nova Scotia. The RCMP said Twitter was a superior way to communicate. Let's take a minute to break that down. The Nova Scotia RCMP Twitter account has just over 120,000 followers today. It only had about 75,000 followers at the time of the shootings. And this is a province of nearly a million people. So Twitter is, at best, a limited way to communicate that people's lives are in danger. In rural Nova Scotia, with a primarily older population, people are less likely to be on Twitter. Plus, tens of thousands of Nova Scotians don't even have internet access. In some areas, cell coverage is non-existent. That's why the Alert Ready system is designed to go out on TVs and radios, too, to reach the most people. The killing spree also started late on a Saturday evening and ended on a Sunday morning. That's not exactly a time when a lot of people are on social media. Twitter is one way the police communicate with the media. The RCMP may have believed this was the best way to tell the media what was happening and rely on reporters to get the information out more widely. And news coverage did start early that morning. Global News published its first article at 8.47 a.m., For journalists working that weekend, the tweets were the only information they had to work with until they started getting to the crime scenes themselves. Reporters started writing online stories and radio broadcasts and retweeting from their own accounts. These updates were also being shared on Facebook by news outlets and reporters and in news chaser groups. So the word was getting out. But let's look at what was actually being said by police. What information was released to the media and to the public this way? At the beginning of the episode, I told you the RCMP sent two tweets between 8 and 9 a.m. They hadn't sent anything since 11.32 the night before. This is how they explained why that happened. In response to new information indicating that the suspect was not in the secure perimeter, at 8.02 a.m. on Sunday... The RCMP began providing real-time information on its Nova Scotia RCMP Twitter account. Twitter allowed our information to be shared, followed, and broadcast by local, provincial, and national news outlets. That's Chief Superintendent Leather speaking on April 22nd, saying the tweet at 8.02 a.m. was sent after police learned the gunman was not in their secure perimeter in Portapique. But that tweet doesn't tell the public that the shooter has left Portapic. Instead, it says that RCMP remain in Portapic and indicates it's an active shooter situation, even though the RCMP knew the gunman wasn't there. We know that by 8 a.m., the gunman was on Hunter Road in Wentworth, nearly 55 kilometers to the north. That tweet at 8.02 did not say who the gunman was, It didn't tell people what to look for. It didn't say that anyone had been killed or that fires had been started. And it told people in the Portapique area to lock their doors. But the message differs wildly from what the RCMP were telling other police forces at the same time. Because at 8.07 a.m., the RCMP sent a BOLO, a be on the lookout notice, to all police in the province. And just like the BOLO sent seven hours before, It identified the suspect as Gabriel Wartman. It also said he was wanted for homicide, was armed and dangerous. 
The bulletin said he was seen loading firearms into a vehicle. And then it said Wartman was, quote, potentially using a fully marked Ford Taurus car, number 28B11, and could be anywhere in the province, end quote. The RCMP were sharing vital information with other police forces about that mock police cruiser and the suspect, and they were not sharing that same information with the public. At 8.54 a.m., as I mentioned, police tweeted a photo of the gunman and released his name, but they were told who he was 10 hours earlier. They referred to Wartman as their suspect in bolos and in radio calls all through the night. Police have not explained this. Why didn't they send an alert along with that bolo at 8.07 a.m. letting people know? The Nova Scotia RCMP had never sent an alert before, but the system exists for this very reason. After the killing spree, there was a lot of back and forth about the process of creating an alert and who was ultimately responsible for sending it. Brian, you reported on that too. The days after the shooting, we heard a lot of different people from government, from the RCMP, talking about jurisdiction. We heard them saying, well, the alert needs to be issued by the province, emergency management officials, but it needs to be requested by the RCMP. And there was confusion about that. We know from Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil that emergency management staff actually were brought in uh, on standby that morning, anticipating the need to put out an alert but that no call for such an alert was ever made by the RCMP. They didn't request one. And so actually at their own behest, the emergency management officials reached out to the RCMP early Sunday morning and asked if they wanted them to send out an alert. Here's what Chief Superintendent Leather said. At 10.15 a.m., Nova Scotia Provincial Emergency Management officials contacted the RCMP to offer the use of the public emergency alerting system. We were in the process of preparing an alert when the gunman was shot and killed by the RCMP. Starting at 10.15 then, police were working on an alert, but the gunman was killed by police at 11.26 a.m. That's more than an hour without anything happening. The gunman was moving quickly that morning, and the police didn't always know where he was. But why was the RCMP so slow to react? The original call to uh, the RCMP was to one of our members here at headquarters. Uh, and you can appreciate then there were a series of phone calls that had to be made to, to find the uh, officer in charge uh, on the evening and to speak to the CIC, that's the incident commander, to have the conversation about the issuing of a message. So a lot of the delay was based on uh, communications between uh, the EMO and the various officers, and then a discussion about what the uh, message uh, would would be, how it would be constructed and what it would say. So in that hour and a bit, in that amount of time of consultation is when uh, the uh, subject was, was killed, uh, as we know, at 1126. The police continued to use Twitter to send messages in the meantime, but Brian, it seems like there was no process in place to communicate with the public in a situation like this. One of the things we've uncovered while investigating this podcast is that there's actually no nationwide or national program uh, for how the RCMP are supposed to use the emergency alert system. So they don't have a policy in place. The RCMP is developing one. But as of February 2021, there's been no update on this from the RCMP. Do we know if it's possible that police didn't want to send out an alert for some reason? Public safety experts we've spoken to said there could be a number of reasons why the police in a situation like this might not want to send out an alert. So in a fast-moving investigation like that which was happening in Nova Scotia that weekend, um, by the time you craft an alert, the information you send out may no longer be accurate or relevant even. So I think there's some question around that. But I mean, the same thing applies to Twitter. So the RCMP, it's not like the RCMP wasn't communicating. They were communicating, but they were doing it over a median that few people in the province use. And so the information arguably 
could be uh, would be would be subject to the same sorts of concerns. So anything you release over Twitter uh, would would you know have to be as accurate or timely as anything you would release over an emergency alert. Um, you know, th- there's also from the police themselves, um, they've raised the potential concern uh, of, of I, I guess, of panic, but um, or at least of the the increased number of calls that can happen following an alert. Right. Just five days after the shooting spree, there was another incident in Nova Scotia that kind of highlighted this potential issue. It was the Friday after, and understandably, the entire province was on edge. That afternoon, there was a report that people in the Halifax area heard what they thought were gunshots. When that happened, once again, the RCMP sent tweets at first, but then they sent an emergency alert telling people to shelter in place. On June the 4th, Chief Superintendent Leather said that created unintended consequences. Following the alert, there were a large number of people who called 911 to ask non-emergency related questions such as, should I pick up my children? Where should I hide? What do I do? This resulted in delays to calls being answered at provincial 911 centers, and many calls were not answered at all because of the call volumes. This had a negative impact on public safety. I want to be clear, though, that the incident on April 24th is nothing like what was happening the weekend before. This was a false alarm. There was no shooter that day. Not like on April 18th and 19th, when the gunman was killing people for 13 hours. It doesn't seem like a fair comparison. Ultimately, the RCMP have said they will create a national policy on the use of these emergency alerts. We are aware it is an available tool, and discussions at all levels need to continue around its use. When activated, it impacts all citizens and police services in Nova Scotia. RCMP is working on national policy to ensure this is addressed as well. We are working with our partners in the province to ensure that when used, the system effectively helps to protect public safety. We commit to sharing those decisions publicly once finalized. It's actually the provinces and territories that decide who can send these alerts. So they can allow police and fire departments to send them on their own. In neighboring New Brunswick, the province made this change in the summer of 2020 to allow the RCMP to send alerts on its own and cut out the middleman, so to speak. We asked Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil at a press briefing in February 2021 what has changed here since the shooting spree. He said the agencies involved need to communicate better about what goes in these alerts. And then he said the minister responsible for emergency management is in discussions with police about how to streamline the process. And I'm sure that if the police agencies across the province feel that they can do the job better uh, separately from one another, uh, build more silos around uh, the way they communicate, uh, then I'm sure he'll listen to it. Back on April 22nd, a reporter asked Chief Superintendent Leather if he was satisfied with the communication from the RCMP that weekend. Very satisfied with the messaging, both uh, with our CIC, so the commander at the time, in terms of his messaging to the officers that were in the area looking for this suspect. Because remember, uh, until the following day, uh, we had some idea where the suspect was located, some theories, but we had no idea. And so the community... I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Communications were being provided were the best uh, and clearest information that could be provided. How can the police say they provided the best and clearest information possible that weekend when we know they withheld vital details about the gunman from the public? Could an emergency alert have saved lives? If Nova Scotians knew what the police knew that morning, that a gunman was disguised as one of them, driving a police car, and he was killing people and lighting houses on fire, would anything have gone differently? 
Would people have stayed home, locked their doors, been on the lookout for danger? There are families who are certain this information would have saved their loved ones. Because early that Sunday, so many people went about their day as normal. When the gunman left Wentworth, he headed south. He drove to the Glenholm area. That's a town about 20 kilometers from Portapique. If you're not familiar with this part of Nova Scotia, let's take a moment to understand the geography. There are maps on our website too, globalnews.ca slash 13 hours, to help you visualize what was happening that morning. This is largely a rural province. There aren't a lot of major centers, and there aren't a lot of major highways either. If you can try to visualize Portapic, Glenholm, and Wentworth on a map, it's like the shape of a backwards L, dissecting the province from the Bay of Fundy to the Northumberland Strait. Each point on the letter is a location, starting with Portapic on the bottom left. Then 18 kilometers east is Glenholm, and at the top of the L, about 35 kilometers to the north, is Wentworth. So the quickest way to get from Wentworth, where the gunman had killed Sean, Alana, Tom, and Lillian, to Glenholm is to take Highway 4, heading south. This raises a lot of questions. At 8.07 that Sunday morning, police knew the gunman could be anywhere in the province, driving a mock RCMP cruiser. Then by around 9.35 a.m., police knew a woman was killed on Highway 4 in Wentworth. Why didn't the police block off all the roads in the area? Two 911 calls came in from locations on the same highway that Sunday morning. First, that a woman was killed on Highway 4 in Wentworth at around 9.35, and then at 9.48, that the gunman was at a house near Glenholm, according to the RCMP's official timeline. Heavily redacted court documents detail one couple's terrifying encounter with Gabriel Wortman that morning, a near miss in more ways than one. This account is based on a summary of an interview police did with a woman who said she was an acquaintance of the gunman's. According to court documents, the woman said she learned about what was happening in nearby Portapique the evening before, when her mother called and told her to keep her doors locked. She and her husband were home together that day. When she woke up at 8 Sunday morning, she read on social media that Greg and Jamie Blair had been murdered. She remembered that Wartman lived in Portapique and said, quote, hope it wasn't Gabriel that lost it, end quote. That's what she told police in an interview after the killing spree. The documents say this witness told the RCMP she knew Wartman had a police car that he was going to decal up. She commented that it would be a disaster if he was in a police car. They called 911 that morning to warn police. The court documents say that 10 or 15 minutes after that 911 call, a marked police car drove into the woman's driveway, up onto the lawn, and turned around. The driver got out, and she recognized him. It was Wartman. He was wearing a ball cap and a vest. He was carrying what looked to be a rifle. They called 911 again at 9.48 a.m. The court documents say she heard the doorbell ring and her dog started barking. And then the dog stopped. She told police she thought the gunman had come inside because her dog doesn't usually just stop barking. Wartman got back into the mock police car after a few minutes and left. It's not clear from the heavily redacted documents why he decided to leave or what he was doing while he was there. This couple came very close to becoming his 18th and 19th victims. But for some reason, the gunman moved on. And it turns out, police were very close behind him. In June, Superintendent Darren Campbell suggested that the RCMP almost stopped the gunman near Glenholm. We were uh, on the line with those uh, individuals of that residence, uh, and they were describing uh, the police vehicle. They were describing uh, the gunman uh, and uh, carrying a gun. And uh, our officers were en route. And in fact, there, there was one of our officers that um, had seen uh, a police vehicle pass him. And by the time he got turned around, um, the gunman had actually entered that large property and uh, unbeknownst to the officer that had actually turned around to try to pursue uh, the gunman. So there was uh, clear indications and information that uh, we had the gunman uh, pinned down in that Glenholm area at the time. The RCMP thought when they arrived that the gunman was still there, 
It isn't clear how Wartman managed to get away. We actually did believe that we had the gunman pinned down in residence or on that property, and it was a large property, uh, which is very important to note as well. Through the timings of, of the video canvas that we did, um, we actually missed that gunman by minutes. Police had a helicopter involved in the search at this point. That Department of Lands and Forestry helicopter was called in because the RCMP's own chopper was out for maintenance that weekend. The court documents say the woman in Glenholm heard it right before she heard banging on the glass at her house. Then she heard the police yell, Come out with your hands up, Gabriel. Come out with your hands up. At 10.04 a.m., the RCMP sent another tweet. Quote, RCMP NS is advising people to avoid Highway 4 near Hidden Hilltop Campground in Glenholm. Gabriel Wartman is in the area. Please stay inside your homes and lock your doors. Hashtag Portapic, end quote. But he wasn't there. And again, so many people didn't get that update. Heather O'Brien and Kristen Beaton's families will always wonder what might have been if they had known about the danger. Kristen was a continuing care assistant with the Victorian Order of Nurses, and she was making home care visits to clients that weekend. Like many healthcare workers, she was worried about being exposed to COVID-19 or exposing her family at a time when personal protective equipment was in short supply. Adding to the worry was the fact that she and her husband, Nick, had just learned they were going to have another baby. They hadn't even told their family yet. Kristen and Nick were up late Saturday night, and they heard about fires burning in Portapic. A friend of theirs, Lori George, who we heard from in episode two, posted a picture on Facebook of a huge fire, and Nick sent him a message telling him to stay safe. The couple got ready for bed, not knowing much more than that. Kristen dozed off. I got up to check the fire, and I went downstairs and seen the, the clothes washer closed. And uh, I opened it, and there's Kristen's, because of COVID, Kristen was very, Kristen would come home from work, and she'd strip on the deck and go in and shower. She was scared to bring it to Dax, and this is April, mind you, so it's fairly new, and we super, super paranoid her, of course. She's in the many, many homes, feel and taking care of people, so threw everything in the washer and dryer, so every, every night she'd come home, you know. So her VON coat and her winter coat and winter coat were in there, so I hung them up. And uh, her sneakers, everything, she washed every time. She just did not want to bring it in the house and ran it back. So I hung everything up by the fire, and I went to bed. And uh, next thing I know, I woke up the next morning, Kristen gave me a big hug and a kiss. And she goes, thanks, babe, you're the best. She said, I woke up. Thought I'd be wearing a wet coat today, and you hung it up for me. So, a nice warm coat. That's right, you're the best. I love you very much. And, uh, of course, me, tired. Love you, babe. Have a good day. Kristen left Nick and their three-year-old son, Dax, at home in Onslow Mountain, which is about a 45-minute drive northeast of Portapic, early that Sunday morning. She went about her way. I rolled over and fell asleep for another half hour, 40 minutes, whatever it was, until Dax woke up. We got up. Started playing, making them breakfast, and uh, kind of checking in, wondering what, you know, things are quiet down in Portapec. They must have just thinking it was like, a, you know, isolated incident where something happened, you know, neighbors weren't getting along, or, you know, the world's it's kind of a scary place. That stuff's usually kind of isolated or, you know, stays in an area. Never heard anything about it. Nick had no reason to believe the gunman was anywhere near Kristen as she drove to work. The couple were together for 10 years. They first met at a Tim Hortons where Kristen was working in Truro. Nick remembers that day. She laughed at one of his jokes in the coffee shop. And then... Kristen actually added me to Facebook. And I remembered I was in my buddy's garage. We were having a drink and I was really excited. Like, oh, look at this, Kristen. This Kristen added me. And, you know, and... Of course, there was some guy talk, and we don't need to say that, but <laughs> you know how pretty she was and all that. They hit it off right away. Nick liked how she was independent and caring. I had a dog, Jagger, 
she was my baby. She went everywhere with me in the back seat. And actually, mine and Kristen's first date, we just met somewhere and we sat for coffee. And uh, she turned around. She goes, "There's a dog in your back seat." I said, "Yeah." And uh, she took right to Jagger. And you know, the more she hung out, the more she came over. It was she was more excited to see Jag at first when she first walked in. And I just. You can really judge a person by how a dog reacts to that person. And Jagger just loved her, like, instantly. So, really, she was just very bubbly, happy, like, uh, always trying to put, like, positive spin on things. And she was just uh, she was just a very nice person. And she had the most beautiful eyes ever seen, like, ever. Nick said she was an incredible mom to Dax. Kristen would never be late for work. She was always on time. And I heard a couple funny stories from her coworkers since that Kristen was late a decent amount of mornings. And uh, they're like, you know, is everything all right? And she's like, I was leaving Dax at daycare and he asked for one more hug, Mama. And she said, I wasn't going to not give him that hug. All through her day at work, Kristen and Nick would usually stay in contact, texting. He knew where she was headed next. It gave him some comfort to know where she was when she was on the road. But by mid-morning on Sunday, they weren't talking about her client visits anymore. They were talking about the gunman. Heather O'Brien was on the road that morning too, and she was talking with her daughter, Darcy Dobson, about what they were hearing from Portapic. We, from the very few updates we got that morning, thought that the threat was in Portapic and only in Portapic. So she- you know, you go about your daily routine in a community 15 minutes, 20 minutes outside of Portapique, you think, oh, you know, there's nothing happening here. Heather was getting ready to make her weekly trip to visit her kids and grandchildren. She also happened to work for the Victorian Order of Nurses, like Kristen. It was hard, um, especially with mom being frontline, being a nurse. Um, she knew that she couldn't come near the kids or anyone, and... We were in a lockdown, so she would come on Sundays and come see all of her grandchildren. We all kind of lived very close to each other, so it was like a circle for her to go around and see all of her kids and grandkids. So it was nice. On Sundays, she would stand outside the big bay window of my house anyway and talk to the kids and wave at them through the window. A mother of eight, Heather was the glue that held their big family together. We always did Christmas Eve at her place, and she made sure every one of her 12 grandchildren had gifts. They were spoiled, rotten. Um, she she loved to feed everybody. So anytime we could come together for a meal or a barbecue or have all the kids in one place, I think that's probably when she was at her happiest, is when she knew where all of her children and grandchildren were, because they were like a shining light to her. Heather wasn't working that weekend, but she offered to come in on her day off. That morning, she was on the phone with another nurse who was on shift that day and who lived on the other side of Portapic. They talked about how the roads were closed around Portapic, and Heather offered to help with her client visits if she needed. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that she was a natural-born healer. Um, she wanted to help save the world. So that's probably what she was most passionate about, was making sure the world was a better place to live in. So Heather made her way from her home in Masstown to DeBert, about a 10-minute drive. The roads there weren't blocked. She was on her way through town, heading to pick up coffee and then on to Darcy's place. She drove down Plains Road, which cuts right through the center of DeBert and takes you through the surrounding industrial area. It actually intersects with Ventura Drive, where the gunman spent Saturday night after he left Portapic. Information was starting to trickle out on social media about the murders in Portapic, and at her first client's house that morning, Kristen heard that someone she knew had been killed. We talked about it on the phone and just how unbelievable and how horrible that would be and how we felt bad for that person. And- Nick was at home, scrolling through Facebook, trying to find out more. Kristen continued with her workday. Then Nick heard something was happening in Wentworth, and he remembers thinking, Wentworth is a long way from Portapique. Could this be a second, unrelated incident? Just before 10 a.m., 
Kristen stopped her car on Plains Road in DeBert. She was taking a short break, texting with Nick. And then he saw another update from the police. The gunman's photo was now circulating on social media. He made sure Kristen knew. I messaged her and told her, don't stop for anybody. Don't, you know, we don't know what's going on here. It just might be just a fluke that it's another kind of random incident, you know. But don't stop for anybody. Don't, you know, no matter what. Don't, you know, if someone jumps out in front of you, you know, that you don't know, run them over and we'll deal with it later. Like, not ever thinking that, you never think it's you, right? It could happen to you. And uh, so then they released his picture and I sent it to her. She opened it. And a few minutes later, I sent her another message. She never read it. Ever. It was too late. She's a young lady that never harmed a soul in her life. You know, three-year-old at home, pregnant with her second child, mind her own business, sitting in before April, what would be the safest spot in DeBert to sit? I don't know. I always worried about that stuff, and she was my world. And uh, you know, as a you know, a good husband, always tried to make sure she was as safe as could be. And, uh, you know, she could have went left, right, ahead, reverse, whatever, but if it had been a black shed that pulled up, she would have pulled away. But it wasn't. Fully marked cruiser with a man wearing a full uniform. What are you taught right from a toddler? Never run from cops. She didn't have hope and help. It was pure happenstance that Heather O'Brien came down Plains Road right around 10 a.m. She was still on the phone with her friend when she heard gunshots. She saw an RCMP car. Darcy was at home waiting for her mom to come by with coffee when she heard from her mom's friend. She actually had sent me a message and said, I need you to call me and gave me her phone number. And so I called her and she said, I was just on the phone with your mom. She said she heard gunshots and the RCMP were in DeBert. I asked her where she was. She said between the two locations that she was and uh, that it was okay that the RCMP were there, the police were there. And the next thing that she heard was mom scream. And she heard like thud, 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 which at the time, I think she thought it was a cell phone. Maybe mom put her car off the road or something. Darcy says she doesn't know if her mom stopped because of something she saw or if she was pulled over by the gunman pretending to be a police officer. But just meters away from where Kristen was killed, Heather was too. Darcy said the rest of that day comes back to her in bits and pieces. Her family immediately tried to find out more. Had there really been a car accident or something worse? One by one, they drove to the area near Plains Road. First, Heather's husband, Andrew, got in his car and tried to get to the scene. He went down and he couldn't get through um, because they had the road blocked off. So my sisters and I tried to get down there. Uh, my brother went a couple of times and we just, we couldn't get down anywhere near. We didn't know what was going on. Darcy tried calling the hospital. She called the RCMP detachment in Bible Hill over and over, asking for information. The whole time she had a sinking feeling that this couldn't be a car crash. And nobody would tell us anything, nothing. So then finally, uh, about five or six o'clock, that night, uh, my two youngest sisters went down and basically demanded be told what was going on. And they said, wait for your dad to show up and we'll, we'll talk to you. So an investigator came down from the side of the road, showed us a cell phone picture. Heather's family identified her through that photo. The confirmation came nearly eight hours after she was killed. 
Nick was also panicked as the minutes passed and his calls and messages to Kristen were going unanswered. And then minutes turned to hours. He too tried calling the RCMP in Bible Hill, but no one was answering. As a last resort, he said he started calling 911, reporting his wife as missing. So I just kept calling and saying, listen, I give her description, her name, her the description of her car, the license plate of her car, the special um, uh, baby on board decal that we had. Nick said Kristen's brother went to see if he could find out anything from the police who had the area blocked off. One of the officers on scene told him that a young female left there with chest injuries and was taken to the hospital. I hit my knees in the backyard. I'm not over religious, but I hit my knees in the backyard and I prayed. At this point, I'd take it, whatever it may be. No, she's in a wheelchair. She's, I don't care if I can look after every second of my life as long as she's there. And he raced to Truro Hospital. He drove like 200 kilometers an hour the whole way on the highway. And he went in and it was under lockdown. And he beat on the windows and made such a scene. Security came out. And then the higher, one of the higher ups of the hospital come and he said, uh, they said, we can't tell you anything. He said, I don't want to know anything. I just want to know it's my sister in there. It's all I want to know. Nobody's telling us anything. It's all we want to know. And I'm here. Seconds are like hours. And uh, the person said, unofficially, I can tell you that your sister is not here. What they're doing to you isn't right. So he makes that call to me. So I go from knowing. There's a pretty good chance. It's up and down all day. I mean, it's at eight hours of ups and downs. You know, maybe she is injured. You know, I sent friends out looking for her. There was four wheelers. I had friends in trucks driving through the woods. Nick called someone to come and look after Dax because he was sure that any minute the police would show up in his driveway and tell him that Kristen had been killed. But they didn't come, not until just before 6 p.m. That's when he was notified of Kristen's death, eight hours later. So yeah, that was eight hours of the worst moments of my life. You know, how would I feel if she was just injured and crawled in the woods to get away and he took her car? And she was laying there dying, and I, you know, they obviously weren't looking for her. You know, like the most helpless feeling I've ever had in my entire life. Nick and Darcy are now linked through this horrific tragedy. Their families experienced a similar loss. They've both been outspoken since April about the things they think went wrong, and they both believe that an emergency alert could have saved their loved ones. Nick and others knew there'd been a shooting in Portapic overnight. They just didn't know how serious the situation was because of the lack of information from police. Without a shadow of a doubt, if that alert had went off at 9.56, Kristen could have made it right two minutes before where she was sitting and she would have come home. She'd have come straight home. It would have been a game changer. The second I got that alert, you know, individual doing what he was doing, you know, dressed as an officer in an RCMP car, that's kind of next level. That's, you know, beyond sicko, beyond anything imaginable, really. So, yeah, like, without a doubt, and, you know, Kristen cared about her workers and, and, uh, clients but uh with something like that she wouldn't have messed around and or would i i would have me saying this it doesn't sound right but i would have made her come home like i would have said come home now like you know but this isn't worth it after what happened in portapic the night before he just can't understand why police didn't give that warning doing what he did down there you know I wish with my whole soul that none of it happened and none of it happened, you know, to anybody. But 
them seeing what happened down there and what he was capable of, why would you even debate on warning the general public? It's unimaginably difficult to know that Nick and Darcy and so many others are left to hold on to that impossible question. What if? I know, and I will always believe, that the alert would have saved my mother's life and the lives of anybody outside of Portapique. I believe that. There's nothing that you could ever say to me that would make me not believe that at this point. She would never have left the house. She had no reason to leave the house except to check on her children and grandchildren, which she thought she was safe to do because the threat was in Portapic, which is the deadly assumption made by the RCMP. So the alert system should have went out. Uh, in my opinion, it should have been geared up and ready to go that night when they knew who he was and what he was driving. Because they were told. And it, it, what's frustrating to me is when I, I listen to the interviews back, because I have them all recorded, like all the updates on the investigation, and they say that it wasn't until 6.30 in the morning that a key witness gave them the information that they needed to know that he was in a police car. And that's a lie. That is a lie. And so, like, why, what is the point of the lie? Like, what does it gain you to lie to the general public and people who are hurting? I just, I can't, I can't wrap my head around it. And it's shocking. The RCMP said in the days after the shootings that they learned key information about the gunman and his police disguise after his common law partner called 911 at 6.30 Sunday morning. But we know they learned about this closer to 10.30 the night before, from the first witness on the scene. We know they told other police forces who the suspect was overnight. The RCMP's use of Twitter to share information with Nova Scotians sporadically over those 13 hours is also something Darcy will never understand. Twitter in rural Nova Scotia, horrible idea, horrible idea. Um, I don't have Twitter. I actually just recently got Twitter after this event because they don't seem to want to change using Twitter as a way to communicate with the public. But I just, rural Nova Scotia, I could not find you, anybody who uses Twitter on a regular basis. So I think that was, that was a big mistake. It's a hard thing for me to talk about because I, I probably come off as angry, which I was, but I think everybody needs to understand that all of that anger comes from a place of hurt because you're taught from the time that you're a child that the RCMP, the police, they're there to protect you and serve the community. And you feel almost cheated because you didn't get the same level of protection that you expected, I guess. So it's a hard feeling to describe because it really does come from a place of hurt. And it's, it is incredibly frustrating. Over time, the police account of what happened to Kristen and Heather has changed. And that's been painful for their families, too. At first, police said the gunman pulled over at least one of their vehicles on the side of the road and then killed them. But then on June 4th, the RCMP said that the gunman didn't pull anyone over using that mock police car that weekend. In police investigations, it is normal for details to change over time, especially an investigation on this scale. Police were sorting through hundreds of witness statements in the weeks after the shootings. So the reality is, is that uh, investigations, people give us information and that information is interpreted. And that was the interpretation of the information at that time. Uh, since that time, it's been confirmed through the investigative team uh, that the eyewitnesses at the scene do not describe that the gunman was pulling over any vehicles. We do know what the details uh uh, what those details are that surround those interactions between the gunmen and uh, the victims in that area. Uh, again, um, for the sake of, of uh, not uh, you know, traumatizing the families, uh, to be able to describe that uh, would not be uh, appropriate. Um, but I'm, I'm very confident and I'm convinced, uh, based on that uh, witness information, that the gunman was not pulling over vehicles. 
But for Darcy, the back and forth about this misses the point. That when her mother saw a police car that morning, she thought she was safe. Because by 10 a.m., police hadn't warned anybody about a killer who looked just like one of them. Because she was on the phone, we know for a fact that she only stopped where she stopped because she was comfortable because there was an RCMP member there. So the car did aid him in being able to murder her. And that's, that's just a fact. She never would have stopped if she was not comfortable because a police officer was there. And these are words she has, she said word for word, the RCMP are here and died within seconds of those words coming out of her mouth. Darcy and other victims' family members are still searching for answers about why certain decisions were made that weekend. And they've often felt as though they're going it alone. At one point, they've even had to take their demands for transparency from the government and the police to the streets. That's something we'll talk about in a future episode. Darcy said she felt like there was no other choice. I promised from the very beginning when this happened that I wasn't going to let it go. And had it been any one of her children, she wouldn't have let it go either. And again, I say, I, I have said this in interviews before that had you got her instead of me, had it been one of us and not her, everybody would have been scared because she was a mama bear. She never would have stopped until she got the answers that she needed. Nick, too, was reluctant to talk publicly about this at first. He said he feels for the RCMP officers who were working that weekend, but so many mistakes were made. You know, so much could have been different. So much. Roadblocks, you know, hearing it was in the area. Like, he, what happened in Wentworth, they had calls on that. And then, you know, the other poor lady walking in Wentworth, they had the calls on that. He made it from there to Glenholm. Glenholm had drove back towards his last scene from Glenholm. He drove back towards that lady walking in Wentworth. Nick shared the news that Kristen was pregnant in a gut-wrenching interview he gave on national TV. He did that interview to honor her, to tell the world that healthcare workers like her needed more personal protective equipment to feel safe at work during the pandemic. And celebrities, politicians, they paid attention. He and Dax handed out masks in Truro that spring that were donated in Kristen's memory. Everything I try to do like even me sitting here talking like I'm talking, my friends are giggling because it's not me. You know, I'm cussing them a little rough around the edges, but when I'm talking, I'm kind of representing Kristen. So I, she's watching, so I try to do her proud. Nick's going to make sure their little boy remembers her love for him. And in his own way, Dax is helping his dad hold on to her too. He does the look, he does the side look. Kristen would do when she wasn't impressed. She would give you the side look without moving her head and you know whatever you're doing you should probably stop doing it <laughs> and uh, Dax has that look and there's so much actually it's, it's unreal that the more I kind of come out of the numbness I've been in and start trying to make the best of what we have in every minute I'm seeing more and more of it and you know it's a positive because as long as he's here, she'll never totally be gone. At 10.17 a.m., nearly 12 hours after police were first told the gunman was driving a mock police cruiser, the RCMP released that information to the public for the first time. Once again, they used Twitter. A tweet with a photo of the car said, quote, Gabriel Wartman may be driving what appears to be an RCMP vehicle and may be wearing an RCMP uniform. There's one difference between his car and our RCMP vehicles, the car number. The suspect's car is 28B11, behind rear passenger window. If you see 28B11, call 911 immediately, end quote. That warning came too late for Kristen Beaton, Heather O'Brien, Lillian Campbell, and Tom Bagley. At the very moment it was sent out, the gunman was driving down a main street in the biggest town in the area, and no one knew he was there. Meanwhile, things were about to spin even further out of control. 
and people in yet another rural Nova Scotia community would be left to deal with the traumatic aftermath. I heard shots, and then the wife started screaming. And she saw this car, an unmarked car, pull up in the middle of the road over there. Two people got out, one on each side of the car, left the doors open, and they started shooting from the road. That's next time on 13 Hours. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Cress. Our story producer is Dilo Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News reporter Brian Hill. Special thanks to Mike D'Souza, managing editor for the Global News Investigative Unit. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Cress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 hours podcast. If you have a question about this episode or series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13 hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.